Greetings, church. It's good to be with you. Uh, you sing well. I feel like I'm back home. Uh, we are going to be in the book of Obadiah, as Pastor Ed said. Uh, so would you open your Bibles, if they're not already, to the book of Obadiah. Leave it open there, and we will read it in a minute. Maybe uh, some of you are familiar with the 2008 action thriller, Taken. Anybody familiar with that movie? Yeah, yeah starring who? Liam Neeson, right? So in the movie, Liam Neeson pl- plays Brian Mills, and he is trying to strengthen his relationship with his daughter, Kim, when she takes a backpacking trip through Europe with a friend and is kidnapped by men who intend to sell her into slavery on the black market. The film follows her dad as he uses his very particular set of skills to find, punish, and kill her captors and bring his daughter back home safely. So this is all set off by a very well-known line in the film when Brian Mills is on the phone with his daughter's kidnappers and he tells them, I don't know who you are. I don't know what you want. If you're looking for ransom, I can tell you I don't have money. But what I do have are a very particular set of skills Skills I've acquired over a very long career, skills that make me a nightmare for people like you. If you let my daughter go now, that will be the end of it. I will not look for you. I will not pursue you. But if you don't, I will look for you. I will find you. And I will kill you. (laughs) Dramatic pause for effect. He follows through on this promise by doing exactly what he said he would do. The bad people die. Kim comes home safely. I think it's a pretty good movie. But the tenacity of the father's vengeance is really driven by his deep love for his daughter. It is a father's justice driven by a father's love. And that, in my opinion, is what makes the movie just a really good film. I think this is one way to summarize the book of Obadiah. Justice driven by love. The primary problem in the book of Obadiah is that there is a nation who is guilty of exploiting God's people and the people God loves with a special covenant love. And God is making two promises, one to his enemies, which is, I know who you are, I will look for you, and I will kill you. And another to his people, I know who you are, you are mine, I will avenge you, and I will bring you home safely. The book is addressed to the guilty nation, which we'll see in a minute, but it would have been received and read immediately by his people, which means that this pronouncement of judgment was a warning to God's enemies and also a promising word of comfort and encouragement to his people Israel who were on the receiving end of suffering and hardship and injustice. This book is short, the shortest of them all in the Old Testament, but it's very dense And there is a lot that we could take away, and I will not be able to take all that we could take away from even 21 verses. But my hope is that we will leave remembering this. God has promised to judge his enemies, vindicate his people, and remain faithful to his covenant. He has made this promise most clearly through his son, Jesus Christ. And we must look to Jesus Christ when we suffer wrong and hardship and follow his example, because Jesus is the one who assures us of the Father's promise-keeping love. Are you with me? 
So I'm hoping to do this through two points. Here are the two points, and then we'll read the passage, and then I'll ask God to bless his word. Point number one is medicine for all God's enemies. And point number two is a mountain for all God's people. Let's read the book of Obadiah. Hear the word of the Lord. The vision of Obadiah. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. We have heard a report from the Lord and a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up. Let us rise against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rock, in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. If thieves come to, came to you, if plunderers came by night, how you would, how you have been dis- destroyed, would they not steal only enough for themselves? If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave gleanings? How Esau has been pillaged, his treasures sought out. All your allies have driven you to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They have prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. You have no understanding. Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding out of Mount Esau? And your mighty men shall be dismayed, O Timon, so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter. Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you and you shall be cut off forever. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. But do not gloat over the day of your brother in the day, over the day of your brother in the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Do not gloat over his disaster in the day of his calamity. Do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Do not hand over his survivors in the day of distress. For the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. For as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow and shall be, and shall be as though they had never been. But in Mount Zion, there shall be those who escape. It, it shall be holy. And the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. The house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau stubble. They shall burn them and consume them, and there shall be no survivor for the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. Those of the Negev shall possess Mount Esau, and those of Shephelah shall possess the land of the Philistines. They shall possess the land of Ephraim and the land of Samaria, and Benjamin shall possess Gilead. The exiles of of this host of the people of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites as far as Zarephath, and the exiles of Jerusalem who are in in Sepharad shall possess the cities of of the Negev. Saviors shall go up to the Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. This is God's word. Thanks be to God indeed. Let me pray for us. Father, I pray that you would help me now. Hide me so that your word might be exalted, so Christ might be held out, and so your people might be helped. Pray that you would do this for the glory of your name and the good of your church. 
In Christ's name, amen. 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 Who's Obadiah? He's a prophet. You're in the minor prophets. The only thing that we know about the prophet Obadiah is that his name is Obadiah. His Hebrew name means worshiper of Yahweh. That's as much as we know. His vision is the shortest of the minor prophets, but it is dense. And there's a lot that we could draw out, as I said, and I won't be able to do everything, but it's helpful if we understand the context for Obadiah's vision and that it comes with some deep family history of bad blood between Israel and Edom. Edom, or the Edomites, trace their history back to Esau. Maybe you noticed that as we were reading. He is the father of the Edomites. We know this because Genesis 36 tells us, and Esau's twin brother is Jacob, whom God would later rename Israel. And this is why the prophet says that Edom has committed violence against your brother, Jacob. So Obadiah is drawing our attention back to the birth of Jacob and Esau, where their conflict began in Genesis 25. He tells us that the children struggled together, even in the womb. And God explained to their mother, Rebecca, that there were two nations within her, two peoples from within her would be divided. Later, Jacob deceives Esau and steals his blessing in Genesis 27. And God's word tells us that Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, the days of mourning for my father are approaching. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. And Esau's hatred of Jacob marks their relationship. And as he moves his family to the hill country of Edom, uh, which means red, which is a play on his name. They take on pagan religions of their day. They have kings and they become very strong and a powerful nation. And this this generational hatred of Jacob is passed on. They learn to hate the house of Jacob, all while holding on to the fact that, yes, they come from the same family. Now, in Deuteronomy 23, God forbids Israel from hating Edom. He says, you shall not abhor an Edomite, for he is your brother. You shall not abhor an Egyptian, because you were a sojourner in his land. So God sees value in the common history that that Israel shares with the Edomites, even the Egyptians. But the Edomites regularly mistreat Israel. When Israel comes out of Egypt, out of slavery, Edom denies them permission to travel through their territory in Exodus 15 even though Israel offers to not take any food or water while they're traveling on the king's highway. And this vision of Obadiah is most likely written around 586 B.C., right after the destruction of Jerusalem by the Babylonians, during which the Edomites, we see this in our passage in verses 11 and 12 and 13, stood aloof and gloated over uh, over their brother in the day of his misfortune, and they loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. In other words, their brother Jacob... Image bearers of God are being exploited, mistreated, destroyed by a neighboring enemy. And not only do they stand by and just watch it, they smile, they laugh, and they get a little something for themselves. God promises them, as you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your head. God is promising Edom that he is going to, as the saying goes, give them a taste of their own medicine. Not only Edom, but all the nations. 
And this is medicine for all God's enemies. The first couple verses function as a call to arms. Look at verses 1 and 2. Rise up. Let us rise against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. What is happening here? God is going to sovereignly recruit the nations to rise up against Edom as punishment for the mistreatment of Israel. That's what's happening. What's called the prophetic perfect tense is used throughout the book of Obadiah. So even though these are events that are not uh, ha- have not happened yet, they are spoken of as if they have already taken place. Not only is this a glimpse into the future of God of what God will do with other nations, this reminds Edom and Israel and us that the Lord is God of all the nations. He's not only the God of Israel. His reign has no territorial boundaries. Psalm 24 says, The earth is the Lord's and all that is in it, the world and those who live in it. And Proverbs 21.1 tells us, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. And this is what's happening in the first couple of verses of Obadiah. And what an encouragement to God's people who most certainly wrestled with questions of whether or not he was going to stop what seemed like such a powerful enemy. Of course he can stop powerful enemies because all nations belong to him. He can even use enemies for the good of his people because all things work together for the good of those who love him. God says the bill will come due for all the nations. But his initial judgment is against Edom, and Edom is guilty of several things. The first is that they are arrogant and forgetful of who they are, and they also forget who God is. Look at verse 3. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? The Edomites are convinced that because they are nestled deep in the mountains where there are deep cliffs and and steep gorges that provide protection, they are less vulnerable than other nations. And this would have been true nation to nation in a very real physical sense. They were in a kind of an impenetrable place, tucked away. But they believe that their position on God's earth makes them invincible on God's earth. And this is their pride. Who will bring me down to the ground? And God just straight up answers their question. Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down. In other words, it doesn't matter how high you go or how deep you think you're hidden. I will bring you down. He will bring them down because God opposes pride wherever he sees it. It's pride that causes Edom to forget who they are and who God is. And it's pride that causes their hearts to deceive them. They are on God's mountain, not their mountain, because all the mountains are God's mountains. And they exist because God permits them to. And any power that they have in the world is only on loan from the God of all might. Daniel 2.21 says he changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He gives it. 
Edom, the nation who flaunts their relationship with military allies and their strength and their geographic position has been given a promise from God. They will be made small among the nations. Here is a dose of their own medicine. And though the Edomites blindly believe that they can hide in the rocks, we know that there is no hiding from the Lord. The Lord will humble the abusive and the prideful. In the highest position and inaccessible place that no man can reach, God can reach. The psalmist is reminded of this as he, as he envies the prosperity of the wicked in Psalm 73. I love this when he says, when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. Oh, truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away, utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, oh Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. Oh, that's right. They're there because you put them there for your sovereign purposes and you can remove them. And the mighty will fall. The proud will fall. This is what success, privilege, and status in the world can do to Christians and non-Christians alike. We can, just like the Edomites, forget who we are, where we've come from, and who is in charge. Anytime we get a little bit of success, get a little bit of comfort, get a little bit more competent, get another degree, get a little affirmation, or we get we, we, we get the candidate that we want in office, or we get an invite to preach somewhere really special, we get a compliment. There lies the temptation for our hearts to deceive us, and we can say to ourselves, who can bring me down to the ground? And we can boast right along with the Edomites. May God give us grace and mercy, family, to keep us near the cross of Christ, where we're reminded of what we really are and what's been done for us. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. You see, Edom forgot where they came from. And Edom forgot who was in charge of everything. It's our pride that deceives us into thinking we live on mountains of our own making, forgetting that all that's been given us has been given by God. May God keep us near the cross so that we can see who we truly are and how greatly we are loved in Christ. Not because we are great and not because we are lovely, because he is lovely and mighty and powerful and full of faithfulness and full of love. 19th century poet, philosopher, and author, and polymath Josh Ruskin aptly wrote, Pride is at the bottom of all great mistakes. This pride is what leads them to commit several crimes against Israel listed in verses 10 through 14. They read kind of like a criminal rap sheet. And what makes them doubly heinous is that they are committed against Edom's brother. Obadiah gives a summary of Edom's actions in verse 10. And this is the summary. Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you and you shall be cut off forever. This is what they're on the hook for, violence towards their brother. The question is, what does God consider to be violent? We get one answer in verse 11. On the day that you stood aloof, 
On the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for his for lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. So this is what God is describing. God is describing the looting of Jerusalem during the Babylonian invasion. And Edom has power, position. They have shared history. They have the ability to help. And their decision is to do nothing. They just watch as the Babylonians treat Israel like an item and not a people. I asked my 10-year-old last night, as I was looking over at the message, if your sister did something really mean to you, like, like in the morning, like really, like really hurt your feelings, really like crushed you and, and, and really brought you down. And later that day, you saw another kid push her in the front yard. What would you do? He said, I will, I would protect her. And I said, yeah, but, but like she really hurt you. She really, really hurt you. And, and it felt really bad. What would you do? He said, I would protect her. And this is what you would expect him to say. He said, Dad, she's my sister. Nobody hurts my sister. It doesn't matter what she's done to me. And this is, this is the point of Edom's violence. They're your brother. It doesn't matter what they did to you. Help them. And Edom's position is, I'll just watch. They ignore the abuse and victimization of others. And God says, this is violence done to your brother. Not defending image bearers of God is violence in the eyes of the Lord. Standing aloof when someone's being harmed is violence in the eyes of the Lord. And I wonder, do we think about this certainly with physical violence, but do we think about it when violent words are spewed at someone? Or we hear someone make a sarcastic remark that we know cuts the other person or hurts them. Do we come to their defense? Do we assure them of God's love and kindness for them? To stand aloof while someone is harmed and do nothing, God says, that's violence. There is no such thing as guiltless indifference. The bad blood between Edom and Israel shouldn't have no bearing on whether or not they help their brother. We're called to love our enemies. Sins of omission, the failure to do what is right and proper is taken seriously by God. And this should also remind us that it matters to God and it should matter to us. Now, not only is Edom guilty of the sin of omission, they gloat over Israel's misfortune. They boast about it and they rejoice in it. We see those in verse 12. It's funny to them. It's entertaining They trivialize tragedy and and their hearts are callous in the face of human misery. These are not warnings of what not to do. I know your Bible might say, do not, do not, do not, do not, all the way from verse 12 to 14. But but these, 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 these read in other translations as you should not have, you should not have, you should not have. That's, that's the way it should read there. So these aren't, this isn't God warning them, hey, I'm gonna give you a chance. He's telling them, you should not have done that. Those are, look, look at what he says. Those are my people, and you should not have gloated over them. You should not have cut them off. You should not have done that. They are so hard-hearted here that they not only watch, they start to participate in it. This is what happens when you don't check bitterness. It just grows and grows and grows. 
to the point where you go from standing by watching to participating in it. Look at this. They loot their wealth in verse 13, and they stand at the crossroads to cut off their fugitives and hand over their survivors. Here's what's happening. While Babylon is ruining the city and the people, the Edomites are stealing their property, yes, like scavengers preying on the weak. And then they block the escape route so they can't get out. And they hand over any refugee they find trying to run out of the city and hand them over to someone who's going to sell them into slavery. That is exactly what is happening. And God says three times, this is calamity. This is calamity, calamity. The book of Lamentations reveals just how desolate and devastated Israel actually is. Lamentations 3, 17 and 18 says, My soul is bereft of peace. I've forgotten what happiness is. So I say, my endurance has perished. So has my hope from the Lord. That is, that is them lamenting the destruction of Jerusalem at the hand of the Babylonians. They have lost their hope. This is a political devastation. This is an economic devastation. And this is a theological devastation. Will God keep his promise? How can he keep his promise? It's all ruined. Do the people of God still have a future, they wonder? And Edom, their brother, just stands by and watches. Now, this is part of the story of God. Mistreatment, exploitation, suffering, doubt, and confusion. This is part of the story of God's people, which means they are not exempt from it, which ought to remind us that we are not exempt from it. It is part of the story of God's people. Mistreatment, exploitation, suffering, doubt, and confusion. Peter reminds us, beloved, don't, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Which is actually the sermon being preached to the Israelites in Obadiah. We'll get there. This also reveals is that part of the world that we live in means that we exist in the midst of suffering, oppression, and, 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 and this does not disprove the existence of a good God. They, 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 it assures that the true and lasting vengeance of the Lord belongs to the Lord and he will have his day. Ecclesiastes 5 says, if you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter. This is the world that we live in. Ecclesiastes 3 says, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. And Jesus reminds us in John 16, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world, what will you have? Tribulation, trouble, distress, mistreatment, exploitation, suffering, doubt, confusion. But take heart. He says, I have overcome the world. So this is part of hope in the world. We live in the midst of suffering, doubt, even our own doubts, even our own confusion. And we know that God will overcome the evil of the world and he will deliver swift and definitive justice one day. Obadiah warns the Edomites and assures the Israelites that God's enemies will get a taste of their own medicine, and then some. Look at what he says in verse 5. If thieves came to you, if plunderers came by night, 
How, how, how you have been destroyed, would they not steal enough for themselves? If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave gleanings? So in other words, he's saying, even thieves and those who gather grapes for wine, they leave a little something, like, left over. No one is that thorough. But unlike robbers and unlike grape gatherers who leave a little something, the nations are going to be, the nations here, enemy nations are going to strip Edom bare. Edom will not be able to hide their treasures or their people. He says, your allies have driven you out. Literally, all the men of your covenant are driven out. And those at peace with you will deceive you. The people who ate your bread will, will, will trick you. These are people who, who, who they're supposed to have good fellowship and relationship with. Sealed over meals, covenant meals. He says, will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding out of Mount Esau. And your mighty men shall be dismayed, O Timon, that's the grandson of Esau, so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter. If Edom were around in the late 90s, it's possible they would have really liked the song by the locks. What's the key to life? Money, power, respect. What do you need in life? Money, power, respect. And God's wrath will leave Edom completely empty, completely alone, no money, no power, no influence, no respect, no friends, alone. This is God's thorough justice and judgment. Edom won't be the only nation that's targeted on that day. Verse 15 refers explicitly to the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is the day when God actively intervenes to punish sin that has come to a climax for all the nations. Malachi 4, for behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and evildoers will be stubble. Verse 15 in our passage says, for the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. Edom and the nations are in the court of God's justice, saints, where he dispenses judgment in a perfectly just and proportionate way. Do not be deceived, Galatians tells us. God is not mocked, for whatever one sows, that will he also reap. And we're to remember here that this is God's justice. This is not a license for us to go and deal out justice in ways that only are reserved for the Lord. This is the justice of God in action. And and to paint a picture of this, God portrays in verse 16 someone who is drinking wine. Edom is guilty of drinking on God's holy mountain, which is another term for the city of Jerusalem. So in other words, they are making a party out of the suffering of Judah and marking it by drinking celebratory wine. That's what's happening. And God's promise, I think, is quite terrifying. Verse 16, Edom and all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow, and it shall be as though they had never been. So there will come a day when God's enemies will be drunk from the wine of his wrath, when they drink of it forever, and it will completely destroy them. This is eternal loss. This is eternal judgment. Jeremiah 25, Thus the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, Take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath, and make all the nations to whom I send you drink of it. They shall drink and stagger. And be crazed because of the sword that I am sending among them. So this is the day of the Lord. 
then all those who in their pride and arrogance oppose God and and they harm his people, they're going to receive an eternal and holy taste of their own medicine and he will find them and he will pour out his wrath on them forever. The day of the Lord is imminent, Obadiah wants us to know. This is the fate of Edom and this is the fate of all the nations. 16 verses of guilt and desolation and injustice and judgment. I mean, this is pretty heavy stuff. But in the last five verses, we see the love that that drives God's justice. Are you with me? Yes. Uh, There is a mountain for all God's people. But in Mount Zion, the text says, verse 17, there shall be those who escape, and it shall be a holy and it shall be, it shall be holy and the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. Now, what I want you to keep in mind is that this prophecy would have been delivered to Israel post destruction. Okay. So discouragement would have been at an all time high. Hopelessness would have been like the, the predominant theme and feeling among the people of Israel. Psalm 137 would have been a theme song for them. This is what was written during that time in Psalm 137. Oh, how shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? Remember our Lord against the Edomites, the day of Jerusalem, how they said, lay it bare, lay it bare down to its foundations. Remember that, Lord? How can we sing now? And in the last five verses of Obadiah's vision, God promises them that there will be a new Jerusalem where those who are saved will be victorious and they will live in a kingdom where God reigns forever. So there is a future for Jerusalem. And there will be a great reversal of injustice and God's people exiled to the farthest regions will return to possess the portions of the promised land that have been taken from them. The house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau a stubble. They shall burn them and consume them, and there shall be no survivor for the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. In other words, all of Israel will consume all of Edom, all of Esau. Israel will last, and Edom will not. And what's in view here in, 20, in, in verse 19 and 20 is that Israel will possess land that encompasses the four corners of the earth, north, south, east, west, and they'll, their, their exile in Babylon will end. Now, how is this going to happen? And why to Israel? Now, if you're like me and you're reading other parts of your Bible, you might ask yourself, how can, how can this be the promise? How can God make this kind of promise to Israel? And I ask this because the other day, In my Bible reading, I read Psalm 106. Listen to some of the words in Psalm 106. Both, this is speaking of Israel now, both we and our fathers have sinned. We have committed iniquity. We have done wickedness. Our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not consider your wondrous works. They did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love, but rebelled by the sea, at the Red Sea. Later, down in Psalm 106 in verse 19 and 21, it says, They made a calf in Horeb and worshipped a metal image. They exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. They forgot God, their Savior, who had done great things in Egypt. And then even further down, it says this, They served their idols, which became a snare to them. They sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons. 
they poured out innocent blood, the blood of their sons and daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan, and the land was polluted with blood. The Israelites are just as guilty as the Edomites. The Israelites have just as much blood on their hands as the Edomites. So why is there good news of a future kingdom for guilty people? Because the remarkable thing about the book of Obadiah is not that Israel is guiltless or that their suffering makes them seem large and tragic. The remarkable thing is that in verse 13, God says, Israel is my people. They are his covenant people. God has pledged himself to them, and they are the object of his love. He is faithful to his covenant promise, not because Israel is lovely. C.S. Lewis says, God is not proud. He will have us even when we have shown that we prefer everything else to him. I mean, what a God. And here it is, saints, that the reason that guilty people who humbly trust in God's promise by faith have a promise happy ending is because Jesus Christ, God in flesh, from the house of Jacob, would come to suffer injustice at the hands of the vengeful Edomites. He would drink the wine cup of God's wrath at the cross and he would rise from the grave and offer salvation to the nations. Did you notice what I just said? Jesus Christ will come and suffer injustice at the hands of the vengeful Edomites. How do we know that? How can we say that Jesus Christ came to suffer injustice at the hands of the Edomites? We can say that because in 37 BC, Greeks, a Greek had become the common language of Judea, which was under Roman rule. Follow me now. When Greek became the common language, the Edomites were called Idumeans. And when Rome had taken control of Judea, an Idumean, whose father had converted to Judaism under force, was put in charge of Judea by Julius Caesar. Do you know his name? Herod the Great, the vengeful king who ordered a massacre in Bethlehem in an attempt to kill the baby Jesus. And so the family drama of Jacob and Edom continues even up to the birth of Christ. And this Herod is going to have a son whom Jesus would meet in his last hour. Luke 23, the chief priests and the scribes stood by vehemently accusing him. And Herod, with his soldiers, treated him with contempt and mocked him. And then arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day. For before this, they had been at enmity with each other. And what gives them common ground? We both hate Jesus. After Herod Agrippa's death, the Idumean people slowly disappear from history. There are no more Edomites. As God has promised, I will cut you off forever. And who remains? Christ remains the house of Jacob, the lion of Judah. He took on the mistreatment, the punishment, the injustice spoken of in Obadiah. He is gloated over in his misfortune. 
They gamble under his cross for his clothes and his so-called friends and, and brothers. What do they do? They stand far off. They're aloof and they do nothing. And the cup of God's wrath that he asked to pass from him in the garden, he humbly consents to drink and swallow until he is drunk with confusion, so much so that he says on the cross, Father, Father, why? Why have you forsaken me? It's at the cross that Jesus Christ has no influence, no respect, no friends. He is completely alone. The innocent one undergoes eternal punishment for the sins of the nations. And at the cross, justice is served. Injustices are righted. And at the cross, we see God's justice motivated by his love. Because there is an escape in Obadiah. The the escape is in Mount Zion. Not because there is a building in Jerusalem. That's gone. But because Jesus says... That they could destroy this temple and in three days he's going to raise it up. And what's he talking about? He's talking about his body. So there is victory in Zion because Jesus Christ, the temple of the Lord, Zion in the flesh, was humbled in death and rose to life in victory. And in him shall be those who escape. So guilty Israelites and Edomites, they can all come. Because he is the safe place we run to on the day of the Lord. Jesus is the mountain for all God's people and the one who will reign in the kingdom without end. The kingdom of the Lord, anticipated by Obadiah, finds its true and final fulfillment in the person of the risen Christ. He is the reason that God can be faithful to a guilty people. Christ is the reason that we can trust God in hardship and suffering because he entered into and endured suffering for us. And he took on eternal punishment so that we might remember that our temporary suffering and even God's discipline sometimes for our present sins will end in glory and victory and not wrath and destruction. The writer of Hebrews tells us that you have come to Mount Zion And to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. So the promise of Obadiah is that God will bring justice. And while he will pour out that justice on his enemies at the last day, he did pour out that justice on his son. So that his enemies might come by faith and find safety and forgiveness and mercy in Mount Zion. Amen. God has promised to judge his enemies, church. He's promised to vindicate his people and remain faithful to his covenant. He has made this promise most clearly through his son, Jesus Christ. And we must look to Christ when we suffer wrong and hardship and follow his example because Jesus is the one who assures us of the father's promise keeping love. Obadiah is a book about Jesus. And saints, we must do this even when the cause of the hardship sometimes is consequence for our own sin and disobedience against God. Because Jesus, our substitute, is the one who reminds us that the justice we deserve has all been placed on him. And everything that God permits in our lives or allows to happen is an object, an outflowing of his mercy and love to conform us into the image and likeness of his son so that we might enjoy him more fully. And in God's kindness... 
Sometimes he brings us down to the ground, not to destroy us, but to humble us so that we might remember the love of the cross and cry out for mercy and forgiveness, to which God will say, yes, I will give that to you because you are my people, purchased by the blood of my son. The hard part about waiting for justice and deliverance is that we often want to see the vindication and the justice immediately, and we want the immediate solution to match the size of the problem. We are so upset about it and broken by it. And God assures us, just as he's assured Israel, that a day will come when all wrongs will be righted and we will be with him forever. Because there is a day of wrath and a day of hope We can love those who wrong us. We can endure suffering. We can endure shame. We can endure confusion and doubt because we look to our risen Christ, our crucified and risen Christ family. Keep Christ in your eye. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for uh, we thank you for our savior. We thank you that he died so that we might be with you forever. Would you help us to trust him, follow him, and rest in him. In Jesus' name, amen.